0: I don't know any Ilocano. I, I just, I didn't pick it up at all, so. Can you understand it? No, not not oh. a lick. Only the swear words <laughs> <laughs> that I hear when someone Which is not it. <laughs> <though>. <laughs> Nope.
1: Delicious dessert in Tagalog. Delicious dessert. <laughs> Welcome to the Asian Sewist Collective podcast. The Asian Sewist Collective is a group of Asian people from around the world brought together by our shared appreciation for fiber and textile arts, and our desire to see more Asian representation in the sewing community.
0: In this podcast, we explore the intersection of our identities and our shared sewing practice as we
1: create a space for Asian sewists and our allies. I'm your co-host, Ada Chen, and I'm recording from Denver, Colorado. Denver is the traditional territory of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. I'm a Taiwanese-American marketer turned entrepreneur, and these days you'll find me running my all-natural skincare business called Chuan's Promise. That's C-H-U-A-N apostrophe S, promise and sharing my marketing tips on my blog. Most importantly for this podcast, you can find my sewing at i.hope.sew on Instagram. And I'm your co-host Nicole.
0: I'm based outside of Chicago, the original homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Ojibwe, the Potawatomi, and the Odawa people. I'm a Philippine-American woman, a lawyer by day, and a sewing enthusiast the rest of the time. You can find me on Instagram
1: at Nicole NicoleAngelineSews. Before we dive into this week's episode, Nicole, can you tell us about your current sewing project? I can. I am wrapping up some gifts
0: for family. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Wrapping. See what I did there? (laughs) (laughs) So right now we're recording in January of 2023. And in my family, we have three January birthdays. So there's my mom. Uh, Her birthday is on the 15th. And I think I mentioned this. I don't know if this episode is going to come out before or after this one. But I made a fiber and cloth zero waste iris blouse the first time I attempted it. And then when I put it on, I I did the wrong size. It's too small. Oh, I remember this one. Yeah. So I'm going to finish that one up, give it as a gift to my mom. And I'm going to make some sort of satin poly silk drawstring bag to put it in instead of, you know, wrapping paper or something like that. And I, I did tell you yesterday about the belt bag, the bum bag, fanny pack, depending on where you're from, uh, for my brother-in-law. And I made a dust bag for that out of, fancy. it's out of Superman fabric. So it's both fancy and superhero. (laughs) So, you know, I'm in the spirit of making bag gifts. I'm enjoying that part right now. And yes, it's January. I didn't make anybody anything for Christmas
1: could get started Christmas 2023. I got other things I wanted.
0: <laughs> and my brother, he, and the nice thing about January birthdays is that when you talk about to them about what they want for Christmas, you can kind of like carry it over to January. My brother said he wanted anything, you know, Patagonia. He's a very outdoorsy person. And in the spirit of what I believe Patagonia to be like, I, I bought a secondhand fleece. Like a really nice secondhand fleece for a great price. And then I'm going to make a tote bag. I'm like, I've cut out the pieces out of some Bichon Freeze fabric.
1: Oh, the one from, was it Neko Neko in Singapore? So yeah, no, I I have bought, I bought it. I
0: have some from Neko Neko that is also Bichon fabric because it's Bichon. I got to get it. But this particular one I had bought when I was in Hawaii in 2021 from a fabric store on oahu so we're gonna make a a tote bag for them so he has uh he adopted a dog himself that is a mix of like toy poodle bichon and i think pekinese oh cute she looks like mochi but probably twice twice the length of legs she's very tall
1: she's a tall mochi She's very
0: tall. I'll have to share a picture with you uh, in the future. but Super model leggy mochi. Yes, exactly. And so I thought I'd make a tote bag because I was wondering, I was like, what am I going to do with these Bichon fabrics? I love them, but I got to do something with them. And uh, so I'm making a tote bag that will be a good, like, you know, keep in the car for groceries type of thing. So, I love it. Gifts, gifts,
1: gifts. What are you working on? I made my first bra. Oh. Right? Only many months after we did our previous episode about bra making i've actually been sitting on some bra making supplies actually many bra making supplies because i think i bought them black friday 2020 <laughs> from emerald erin i bought patterns for i think it's the Jordy bralette and the black beauty bra as well as sets of the kits for both but i think i bought more of the black beauty bra which is an underwire bra mm. sets. and the thing is i distinctly remember sending her an email and being like my boobs are a little weird like in wide set and kind of like the wire regular wire shapes don't work for me yeah and she has multiple wire shapes and so she was like okay well if you print out the thing and it says this these are the ones you should try that would probably work and so I remember getting those and I think I only had a few but I could only find one so I inserted that it worked fine on the first bra it's definitely a wearable (laughs) toil but there's kind of no way to like stop midway and like do it again or or pick it apart because it's just so delicate and lacy and spandexy and so I have all the adjustments I only need to make three big adjustments which is to the center front and the pow- not the pow- I think it's not the power bar but the side thing that goes to the back strap in terms of like taking them in each a centimeter and then yeah I changed the cup shape a little to actually be the right cup shape <laughs> Because again, patterns are drafted for an ideal that most of us do not actually fit. Right. And it was like well-drafted though, I will say, in like every other aspect. So that was an interesting day-long project that I am very excited to make the translations onto the paper pattern and then try again.
0: Day-long? So it took you not that long?
1: Yeah. I mean, I cut it out on my little, I have like a 12 by 12 rotary cutter mat, like the rotating kind for quilting. Mm-hmm. That I bought bef- when I started sewing and I didn't know anything. And I was like, well, I just need this <laughs> small cutting surface. What a lie. <laughs> right. And so I brought that upstairs and we were watching TV and I was just cutting and following the directions. And then the next day, I probably took three or four hours to finish it. Wow. And I wasn't going super, super fast. I was definitely being a little more careful because it was so small and finicky. But I I could see how if you got this down, you got the pattern to fit. You could probably whip up like a whole new set of bras within a day.
0: That's really interesting. I think when we recorded last season um, with Lily of Lily Pad Designs, I remember really taking a look at like my body. I'm like, I would really love to just get something that feels and fits good. And I still have been, I mean, I'm intimidated by a lot of things. And also I'm like, mm, there's other things I want to work on too. But it's good to know that it's, I guess I assumed I would take like days and days and I would mess it up. But it sounds like you found a good place to start.
1: Yeah, definitely would say that the pattern instructions are pretty clear, well illustrated, and I managed to get through. I know that there are video tutorials, but I did not watch them, and I <laughs> still made it through. It's a wearable bra. You know, the gaping in the, the center front means that I can't really wear it with something too tight because uh, the boobies are not that big. Mm. And so you'll see the poking out in the middle, <laughs> 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 which is fine, but um, not the look I'm going for most days. But yeah, under a sweater, totally fine. And it, I would say that for a toilet, it actually fits about the same as a lot of my ready to wear bras do. And so, if that's the standard I'm holding it to, I'm kind of like, oh, like this could be a lot easier to make something that fits truly, really well than like another garment. Yeah, that's awesome. Hey podcast listeners, looking for a way to support the Asian Solace Collective? Well, we have a great way for you to do that now, and we are excited to announce our first set of merch. We've launched a limited edition set of woven labels on our coffee page, so ko-fi.com slash Asian Solace Collective, and you can get a pack of five woven labels custom designed by our very own producer, Mariko, with some cute sayings from seasons one through three, like, This Was a Panic Sew, Forgot to Pre-Wash, or Made with Fabric Purchased While Traveling. And they all have really cute designs on them that you should definitely go check out on our Instagram and on our coffee page. And to get your very own set of five labels, you will be supporting the podcast and helping us bring you new content and new guests week after week. So head to ko-fi.com slash Asian Sewist Collective.
0: Today's episode will be about the history of the turno, the national dress of the Philippines. The turno is personal to me and my Philippine heritage, and I've written an article for Seamwork about how I learned to connect with my Filipino culture through learning how to sew the turno, and the
1: link is in our show notes. If you're not familiar with the turno, modern-day turnos are versatile, ranging from two-piece outfits to gowns, and they are recognized by their flat, oversized butterfly sleeves. These sleeves are the key component in these outfits. Now, these butterfly
0: sleeves aren't the regular butterfly sleeves you might see in patterns or fashion books, which are the flowy, drapey sleeves flaring out from the shoulder. And visually, some people mistake the Terno butterfly sleeves as just large puff sleeves, but puff sleeves are gathered at the shoulder to create fullness to puff out, having defined structure to it. Modern Terno sleeves are large, pleated sleeves that are pressed to have a defined, structured arch shape. And again, we will have pictures in our show notes
1: for listeners. But the Terno didn't always look like that. So during pre-Spanish colonization, so 900 to 1565, there was no one specific individual Filipino dress. Indigenous groups across the archipelago, which, remember, a bunch of islands, had their own distinct mode of dress, depicted in the Boxer Codex paintings from around the 1590s. For those of you who don't know, I had to look this up. The Boxer Codex is a Spanish-language compilation of illustrations and paintings from the Philippines. Filipino clothing in some parts of the archipelago consisted
0: of two pieces. The barro, meaning blouse, which was a simple collarless shirt or jacket with close-fitting long sleeves, which covered the breasts. And a lower garment that came in a few different forms. The Tagalog tapis is a short rectangular cloth wrapped around the waist and secured with belts or braided material. And the Visayan patadlog or Mindanao malong, a tube-like garment that can be girdled around the waist or knotted over the shoulder. These were made from locally woven material such as abaca, to material traded from China, Japan, Borneo, Indonesia, and Malaysia. And for some background, abaca fabric is an organic fabric made from the abaca plant fiber. The abaca plant is a species of the
1: banana plant and native to the Philippines. It's a sturdy fiber that holds its structure consistently. So when the Spanish arrived in 1565, hashtag colonization, they deemed it to be immodest, introducing the long skirt or saya that was to be worn under the tapis. That's where the barot saya comes from. The saya is considered to be the predecessor of the modern-day Terno.
0: It traditionally consists of four pieces. Now, before we continue, I want to note that there's a few interchangeable terms, and this is because Tagalog adopted Spanish loan words during Spanish colonization. For example, the first piece of the saya of course, includes the baro, which is the Tagalog term, or the Camisa, which is the Spanish loan word. The next piece, which is a piece of fabric worn over the shoulders like a neck scarf it's called an alampay in tagalog or a panuelo if we're using the spanish loanword then there's the saya again that's a skirt and depending on the region it ranges from a full-length skirt to a slightly shorter midi-length skirt and finally the tapis or a rectangular piece of cloth wrapped over the saya to make it easier we will only be using the tagalog terms for the remainder of the episode
1: so the baro and alampai were made from light, thin, delicate fabrics known as nipis. And these were things like piña, sinamay, and juicy due to the hot tropical climate. They were locally woven materials. So piña cloth is a textile made from pineapple fibers, but it's so laborious to weave that only the most privileged class were able to afford piña cloth. And we will be talking about piña cloth in a later episode this season. Sinamai and juicy are woven from abaca, a specific banana plant native to the Philippines, like Nicole mentioned. Silk or cotton were also woven into these fibers to create contrasting stripes. Because of the light, sheer nature of the fabrics, an inaguas, or slip, was used under the baro for more modesty. The tapis and saya were made from brightly colored, opaque fabric in cotton, sinamai, or imported silks, usually from China. They were generally woven in plaid or stripes. Now, with Spanish colonization and Catholicism, the Philippine dress was
0: influenced by European and Western aesthetics. By the 1700s, we see artist depictions of the traje de mestiza, translating to the, quote, dress of a mixed-race female. And this was later referred to as the Maria Clara dress, named after the mestiza protagonist of the controversial novel Nole Mi Tangere, written by the Philippine national hero José Rizal in 1887.
1: You can still see these garments worn in Filipino cultural dances, such as the carinosa or the Tinikling. And in the carinosa, a couple usually dances as like a courtship ritual with the male in a barong, the male's blouse, and a female wearing a formal Maria Clara dress, or more recently, a balintawak, which usually refers to a country version of the barot saya. That is to say, it's more of like a less formal, kind of more casual baro'tsaya. The teeny kling is a barefoot dance done in time with rhythmic tapping of two or more bamboo poles. Due to the nature of the dance, the dancers similarly wear a barong tagalog or a balin tawak. One of our podcast producers, Shailin, who is also producing this episode, has an example of the
0: baro'tsaya on her Instagram feed. At Shailin Sose. that's S H I. L-Y-N-S-E-W-S. She also owns the Creatures of Cuento. The at Creatures of Cuento is C-R-E-A-T-U-R-E-S-O-F-K-W-E-N-T-O, which sells plushies of the Filipino
1: mythological culture, the Mananangal, wearing a balintawak. A shameless plug, also follow Shyland on YouTube if you would like some tutorials. Yes. <laughs> the Baro Saya also saw many changes during the late 1800s into the 1900s as global trade and Hispanicization continued to influence fashion. The Baro of the mid-1800s had bell sleeves that reached down to the wrist, which is kind of reminiscent of the popular pagoda sleeves. These pagoda sleeves, which were common in the Victorian era, were inspired by Chinese architecture of the same namesake. So the sleeves start out gathered and then they get narrow at the shoulders, flaring really wide at the wrists in a swooping triangular shape. And every time I see one of these sleeves, I think someone definitely had that in their drink. <laughs> Just the practical 21st century me is like, how did what is happening here? You never I mean, have to drive a car, so I guess that makes sense. But how did you drink water <laughs> and not put it in your cup? <laughs> Those were strange
0: times. (laughs) 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 So, the book Fashionable Filipinas, an evolution of the Philippine national dress and photographs, showcases this evolution well. Philippine fashion mirrored European fashion. So, for example, bustle skirts, which created volume in the back of the waist, inspired the backward thrust of the sayas de cola or the trains, and later draped overskirts in Western fashion. Turned into the Dalantal, an elaborately embellished apron resembling ups- an upscale tapis. And while the skirts continued to change, so did the sleeves. The large pagoda sleeves slowly shortened in length, so no sleeves and drinks anymore, and or you know, driving issues. So nobody <laughs> didn't drive. Then when the large of mutton sleeves came into fashion around the 1890s, the bato sleeves further emulated it. So Lego mutton sleeves are characterized by voluminous amounts of fabric that were gathered or pleated at the sleeve, tapering down narrowly to the wrist. The bottle mirrored the sleeves with pleating at the shoulders and heavy starching to keep its exaggerated shape. There was no tapering at the wrist due in part by the shortening of the sleeves, likely due to the hotter climate of the Philippines. And the botto also became more complex not just with new pleated sleeves, but with heavy embroidery on the bodice.
1: A matching alampai of the same material and embroidery usually accompanied the top. By the 1890s, Filipino people of all social classes recognized their common identity as a nation and the image of Inang Bayan, or motherland, was dressed in the traje with colors of the Philippine flag. After the Philippine Revolution of 1896 to 1898, The Philippines gained independence from Spain, but then the U.S. immediately took control of the Philippines, leading to turmoil within the country. The U.S. colonization led to sweeping changes and further evolution of Philippine dress. So, the trumpet shaped Gibson girl dress led to the similarly shaped Serpentina skirt. The Serpentina skirts fit snugly at the waistline, flaring out dramatically towards the hemline using local inspiration for different variations. These include the zigzag after the winding Pasig River, the dove shape or paloma, the flower shape or camilla, and the butterfly shape or mariposa. Local material like sinamay was used still and dyed to create completely matching outfits. Kind of like the ones that are trendy right now. Everyone loves a good two-piece. This is when the
0: beginnings of the modern-day turno can be seen because the word turno comes from the Spanish word to match. So Philippine fashion continued to mirror Western fashion, this time from the U.S. The shape of the saya continued to follow our popular shapes of the time. Again, the Gibson girl dress to art deco styles of the 1920s and 1930s. As for the sleeves, they stood away from the body. But by the end of the 1920s, the sleeves featured triangular pleats that allowed the sleeve to fall 45 degrees away from the shoulder. Uh, they were shortened to the elbows and gradually stood closer to the body, almost flattened. And by this point, the
1: sleeves generally stay the same, with the rest of the outfit changing throughout the decades. As rapid urbanization of the Philippines occurred, the youth preferred wearing vestidos or dresses over the traje de mestiza. Zippers became more accessible by the 1930s, which allowed designers to combine the bodice and skirt of the turno. By the 1940s, the Second World War caused a lot of people to give up luxuries. So, Ternos were put away or recycled into other garments for family members, and the turno didn't really resurface until after the Philippines gained its independence from the U.S. in 1946. The sheer
0: baro started disappearing, and in its place, the slip became an opaque bodice attaching to the skirt. The youths also began removing the alampai from the terno, seeing it as a cumbersome accessory. So the alampai, if you remember, was a sheer neck scarf or shawl that was meant to obscure the breasts. Designers leaned into this, creating turnos without the alampi and lowering the neckline on the bodice. They also began to use more modern materials like crepe and jersey. I cannot imagine making a turno with jersey. <laughs> Just my mind can't like I can't wrap my mind around that. So, so
1: technically difficult. Yeah.
0: Of course, this was met with outrage by the older generation, seeing the turno uh, incomplete without the alampi. While the youth wore the turno without an alampi the elder continued to wear the complete ensemble. Our producer Shailen mentions that she continues to see this in social gatherings, where the alampai is worn by older women, seeing it as a more conservative style. And this is true, since brides donning the turno were still expected to wear an alampai conforming to the traditional image of purity and modesty. This expectation kept on
1: until the 1950s. And this is what we see and recognize as a turno nowadays. So modern styles have the distinct shape of the turno sleeves. But
0: with the vestido quickly becoming daily wear, the turno eventually became viewed as formal wear. It became rare to see anyone continuing to wear the turno just out and about. And this discrepancy became more prevalent when the former first lady of the Philippines, Imelda Marcos, dressed in full-length turnos as day and evening wear. Designers began creating more extravagant turnos for the privileged elite. The costs of making a turno similar to Western attire also skyrocketed, leaving it even more difficult for the lower and middle class to acquire a turno. This contrasts with previous decades where the Traje de Mestiza was universally worn. Even when the Marcos regime, known for their corruption and extravagance, ended, Filipinos continued to see the terno as an aristocratic dress and costume. It is widely believed that people were
1: unable to disassociate the turno with the Marcos regime. After the People Power Revolution in 1986, when nonviolent protests led to the end of Ferdinand Marcos's twenty year dictatorship, the Philippines' first female president, Corazon Aquino, chose to wear suits and feminine versions of the barong instead of the terno. So many women followed that, choosing to wear other forms of Filipiniana.
0: Now, Filipiniana is a term used to describe all types of Philippine dresses, ranging from the saya, the traje de mestiza, and the turno dress. The word terno, while literally referring to complete matching outfit, is sometimes used to describe the distinct sleeves. And that's kind of how I use it. Um, since the Marcos regime, the terno has been skitter- considered a costume rather than a national form of dress. Efforts have been made by designers and entrepreneurs to reclaim it. Ben Chan, chairman and founder of Suyen Corporation and executive creative director of Bench, sponsored the turno Ball of the Metropolitan Museum of Manila in 2000. This national conference celebrating the Turno stood as a design competition for young designers and as a tribute to the ailing couturier Joe Salazar, known as the King of Philippine Couture and a Terno master who passed the next year.
1: This led to Gino Gonzalez, the designer for the 2003 Turns of the Terno exhibit for the Metropolitan Museum of Manila, and Mark Higgins, son of another turno master, pitching the idea for a photo book of vintage photographs of women wearing the turno. Chan loved this idea, embarking on a more ambitious project, which led to the fashionable Filipinas book mentioned earlier in the episode. This was released in 2015, along with Bench's platform, Love Local, which advocates buying and wearing more Filipino fashion. With the book's release, Gonzalez also held a three-day workshop on the history of the turno and its construction, which proved to be really popular. And so with that, the first Ternocon was dreamt up, with the first one occurring in 2018 and the second one in 2020 having its own photo book called Ternocon 2020 Reimagining the Philippine Terno. Of course, other designers have showcased the
0: Terno to the world. Some notable designers include Andre Adrada, who designs for 2015 Miss Universe Pia Wurtzbach and Girson Demavivas, whose designs for 2018's Miss Universe Catriona Gray have both propelled the Terno into the limelight. Recently, Michael Cinco became the first Filipino to showcase in Paris Fashion Week with his Terno-inspired collection.
1: Bernadette Banner, a historical costuming YouTuber, has a video on YouTube reviewing period costumes in movies and shows from 2022, and she mentions a Filipino show, Maria Clara at Ibarra, which received a very good rating from. Maria Maranon, a history student at Ateneo de Manila University. The show's production designer was overseen by Gino Gonzalez, who I mentioned before, focusing on period accuracy and even sourcing from as many local designers and weavers as possible. So for those interested, the show is actually available on GMA Network, but there's a lot of snippets of it on YouTube that you can watch. Now, Nicole, at the beginning of this episode, you mentioned your Seamwork article earlier where you dive into the history of the turno and make your own. Can you tell us a little bit more about that process of connecting to your roots through making the turno?
0: Yeah, I think I mentioned a few times on the show, you know, that part of my sewing journey has been learning how to do this craft, something that as a child, I associated with garishness and ugly dresses and of being forced to learn and perform cultural dances. And I I just never really thought of it as anything more than that. And interestingly, I never actually used the word turno until I started sewing. My mom isn't even familiar with it. I think when I asked her, what are those flat sleeves with the with the arch top and the flat bottom, she's like Filipiniana, that's what she calls it. So I'm now obviously more familiar with using the term turno. So you know everyone's experience is different. Even though I grew up wearing some of this stuff, I just did never heard the word turno. And, you know, around the same time I started sewing, I decided I wanted to reclaim my Philippine heritage by learning more about its history, you know, the pre-colonization times, what happened with the Spanish and the, the Americans, and learn about art of support Philippine ex creators and businesses, learn about, you know, our complex history with colonization and how it impacts the way that we think. Part of it's part of it was a desire to better understand my parents and my grandparents and and decisions they made, how they are, and it's not that, I'm not reducing them to the history of the Philippines. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, some context uh, I think is helpful, but tying it into sewing was sort of a natural first step. And I, I met Lin, and I'm pretty sure I've talked about this on the podcast because I Googled how to make a (laughs) turnoff because I was like, I don't know where to start. Her video popped up. And I remember like following her on Instagram and then being like, oh my gosh, you're the person with a YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) so i decided that i was going to make a turno for my birthday of the september 2020 which was the year i started sewing and it wasn't it was not great shylin is great the video is great (laughs) but um my final product was i'm i'm still proud of it i was actually trying to find it before the recording but typically you know typical i it was like two minutes before the recording when it (laughs) occurred to me that i should put on a turno um, I don't wear it anymore, but I still love it, it as like the first thing that I, I did. And, and the reason why it went all wrong is because I sewed in interfacing, which caused the fabric to curve. Oh, and, and Shailen was like, Oh no, you got to starch that. You <laughs> get it's, uh, I should have used a lighter interfacing and then starch and press that ish, you know? Yeah. So the second one that I made was for that Seamwork article, which came out in 2021. And again, Shailen, she's like, Uh, try making it removable. I'm pretty sure she gave me the idea because uh, storing it was very confusing. Like, how do I (laughs) store this thing that has like these giant sleeves? And um, so I did. And it's pretty simple. You can probably make a turnout out of any jacket that has sleeves and just replace the sleeves with turnout itself. And you want one that with sleeves because the arm size is then drafted to have something on it. And it was a really fun project. I did a two-piece set a real turno with a two-piece oh, yeah, matching with shorts, um, probably not traditional, but I was really proud of it. And a lot of the stuff that we talked about today is something, is a lot of what I delved in. I love the fashionable Filipinas book. It's just fun to flip through. It's fun to learn about. If you can find a copy somewhere, I ordered mine from the Philippines, so it's not super accessible, but um, like look online. There are some Filipino-owned bookstores, particularly in California, that might carry it. And I think that, you know, I don't have to have worn and loved and been like Pinay pride my whole life to feel connected to it. And I think that was part of it. You know, growing up, I I thought that, you know, it's all or nothing. You're either (laughs) Filipino or you're not. And I grew up and I'm like, well, I didn't do enough to be Filipino enough. So I'm not gonna Mm. try to be Filipino. And then the older I got, and I guess the more mature I got, I was like, I don't care what other people think. Like I'm Filipino enough. If I want to learn about it, if I wanna, you know, express and honor my heritage through something that I love, my sewing craft, like why not? You yeah. know. So it's been an interesting experience. I never thought I would. A great regret of mine is not picking up sewing sooner and getting interested in it so that before my Lola passed, I think in mm. 2021. 20, um she could have taught me we could have sewn together. Um, but you know, you can't always account for these things. And she's seen, she saw my work. And, uh, the first thing she said is that I look fat. Something makes me look yep. fat. Cool. Classic. Lola. <laughs> I just remember she's like, mm, don't wear that. You look fat. I'm like,
1: oh, oh classic,
0: <laughs> but she was the seamstress in our family. Um, and so I wish I could have done that, but I think part of, you know, her legacy is, is, you know, me making these things like connect, make me feel more connected to, to loles And then the third time I made it was for frocktails and I did it. <laughs> it was a straight panic. So I should go back and like, I was at the airport, hand sewing, <laughs> hand sewing, like the little, uh, hook and eye closures like onto the arm side and on the airplane and a, and a little bit at the hotel. But I decided to wear a turno then because part of me was like, why am I saving this for a special occasion? You know, the idea of conservative dress and professional dress is something that I have complex feelings about. Maybe it's because I'm a nonprofit now, but I want to wear it, wear no more as like day wear or, or to like have the quote unquote bravery to wear it at a work function. You know what I mean? Like I just, that's something that I want to grow into. And yes, there will be questions, there will be looks, but I don't really care <laughs> that, yeah. about, um, about the looks. I will, I'm happy to answer questions and talk about like what it is, but um, I don't know. I just think it's being able to make it and wanting to make more. And I kind of want to make little ones for my nieces. Um, just makes me feel more connected and is something I'm really proud of. I
1: love it. Thanks for sharing. And I think you're not alone in kind of the evolution of your experience and your relationship to your heritage and your culture and ethnicity and all of those complex identity questions. Like, I think that is also a common thing that you hear about not only just like Asian American people across the board, no matter like where your family comes from, but in general, like if you are a group that has moved somewhere else and then you have had to assimilate, like, what does that mean and how do you carry it forward? And so I'm, I'm really glad that you shared that. Shailen also said that in preparation for this, I mean, you mentioned, we've mentioned Shailen a lot. (laughs) (laughs) She's great. She's fantastic. She's making this entire episode happen. And you should definitely follow her on all the things. But she said that she also had the same experience and how she perceived the turno growing up. And then eventually learning and making her own was a way to kind of feel closer to her roots. She mentions that her start in diving into her roots as a sewist didn't start with the terno. It actually started with textiles and symbolism. So similarly it wasn't until she understood its part in history and seeing others reclaiming the terno that she decided to learn more about it and share it. And we thank you Shailin for having fantastic resources on the internet for it. Side note,
0: have you seen
1: the live
0: action Beauty and the Beast stage production with us? Yes, yeah. So what Shailin said about textiles and symbolism, there is a system of writing called Bai Bai And if you take a close look at hers, H-E-R, hers, mm-hmm. um, her countryside bell, I forget what it's called, or town town bell, the blue with a white apron. Yep. She has Bai Bai written on it that spells B-E-L, Bell as a nod to her Filipino culture. So she is mixed race Filipino. And black. I, I think that's just really cool. And I don't know if that's like way off topic, but when you said textiles and symbolism, that's a, also for me a part of what I'm learning. Like I'm buying, learning about fibers. I'm reading about and supporting businesses in the Philippines that support folks who are local weavers. I have a baca silk that I have no idea what I'm going to do. But I'm so excited to have it, you know, so... I just wanted to throw it out there. Check out the uh, the apron; it's really, really cool. So, would this be a history of episode if we didn't talk about cultural appropriation? <laughs> no, <laughs> I promise it's not gonna it's not gonna be long because you know it's it's and this is gonna be from my perspective. I know some of you or listeners have already heard me talk about cultural appropriation in the turno. Maybe you remember me railing against um, the Great British Sewing Bee, which came back to my mind when I was, was, uh, you know, we have this note in our outline. And I want to go back to earlier when we mentioned that some people mistake puff sleeves for turno. And there've been some recently released sewing patterns with a puff sleeve and a flat bottom, which somewhat resemble a turno. And I have conflicting feelings about these designs. So my initial reaction is usually, oh, where did you get that inspiration from? Looks a lot like a turno. But then I think, you know, Do I have the energy to ask if they were inspired by the turno and if so, give credit? Definitely not. Then I go back and say to myself, well, a gathered sleeve is not the traditional turno, right? It should be pleated. That's what we've learned is that that's what gives its its distinct butterfly shape. And and a great British sewing bee, right? I'm raging against it because the turno contest, the top was a gathered sleeve. I went back and I looked at pictures. The finals, and I was like, "Uh, like, don't call that a turno. It's not. But, you know, I don't have answers here. I just wanted to share my feelings on cultural appropriation as I see it with regard to turno. It's not widespread like the appropriation of the kimono, but when I see a puff sleeve with a flat bottom, I do wonder. It's totally conceivable that someone want, you know, wanted a gathered puff sleeve and a flat bottom and not know about the cultural significance of the shape given that it's not as ubiquitous as other cultural garments, I mean, at least in Western fashion consciousness. But again, do I have the energy to inquire and ask designers to credit the influence? No, I don't. So with cultural appropriation, it's important to remember the three P's. People, power, and profit. Where does the turno fit in here? I challenge listeners, especially those who like the style and want to make it, or see it out there in the community and it's not credited properly,
1: to really think through this framework and step up as an ally where necessary. Agreed. It's, yeah, now that I know what Eternal should look like and what it is, and like the pleats and how much starching goes into it and like really how difficult the construction is, especially if you're going to make it <laughs> removable, I'm like, uh, I look at some designs and I'm like, mm, where did that come from? And I think, especially since starting the podcast, it, definitely impacted the way that i think about design and design influence and a lot of that goes back to how we are taught to take influences and then do you know new designs with them and and whether or not we are taught to not appropriate or correctly attribute where we are getting inspiration from and thinking about like is this inspiration or is this appropriation like am i someone of the dominant culture profiting from this and it definitely takes more of like a eye towards fashion, if you will, to kind of sit there and look through designs. Just consider like food, for example. That one's a really easy one to be like, is this appropriation or is it not feels like appropriation to me? So again, we bring the episode back to cultural appropriation, but uh, this is definitely a history of the turnout episode. So if you would like to, which I highly suggest you do, we have a lot of photos and links to resources and articles in our show notes, which is at asianssewistcollective.com. And so we highly encourage you to check those out. And if you'd like to share your experience with Eterno, we would love to hear from you on Instagram or by email. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Asian Sewist Collective podcast. If you like our show, please consider supporting us on Coffee by becoming a one-time or monthly supporter or by buying our stickers and sewing labels. That's right, we have merch. Buy the labels. They are hilarious. Your financial support helps us with overhead expenses and will allow us to give back to our all-volunteer team who work so hard to provide you with new content each week. The link to our coffee page is ko-fi.com slash Asian Sewist Collective. And you can find the link in our show notes, on our website, and on our Instagram account. Check us out on Instagram at Asian Sewist Collective. That's one word, Asian Sewist Collective. And you can also help us out by spreading the word and telling your friends. We would appreciate it if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All of the links and resources mentioned in today's episode will be in the show notes on our website. That's
0: asiansowistcollective.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with your questions, comments, or even voice messages if you want to be featured on future episodes at asiansowistcollective.com at gmail.com. This episode was brought to you by your co-hosts Ada Chen and Nicole Angeline. This episode was researched by Arthi Ravi and Cindy Chan. Produced by
1: Shailen Joy
0: and edited by Clarissa Volando and Henry Wong. Thank you so much to the other members of our collective who made this week's episode a reality. This is the Asian Sewist Collective podcast and we'll see you next week.